you can learn a lot about someone, about people, by what they're called. Um, we have nicknames, and nicknames often reveal something about the person. But we also have more serious names. And when I was thinking of, uh, of preaching this morning, I was thinking of what are the kinds of things that Christians are called in the Bible. And if I was to ask you to raise your hand and, uh, and, and call out some of those things, um, that, would be, that would be an easy thing to do. I mean, obviously, Christians are called Christians, right? And that means something. Uh, the word Christian means, you know, a, an, an imitator of Jesus Christ, someone who follows Jesus Christ, who looks like Jesus Christ, who takes on the name of Christ onto himself and lives in a certain way that goes with that. Christians are called saints, holy ones, uh, sanctified, set-apart ones. Christians are called sons of God, those who have God as their father and Jesus Christ as their brother. And those, those names speak volumes about what's true. Uh, Christians are called disciples of Jesus, people who, who are, are learners, who are um, students, and who, who study Jesus Christ and who follow after Him and who live like He has lived and who believe what He has said. What about that term believers? Christians, another little shorthand term for describing a Christian, is a believer. One of the most, most basic names for a Christian is believer. Why is that? Because at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is this act of believing. But what is it that needs to be believed? A Christian is a believer, but a believer in what? Well, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe certain truths, certainly. There are, there are facts, there are realities that God has said, this is true, this is the way it is, this is reality, and certainly we have to believe those things. But even more than, than bare belief in certain truths, in order to be a Christian, you must believe promises. You must believe God's promises. A Christian, by definition, is a man or a woman or a child who believes the promises of God. And if you, if you hear or read the promises of God in the Bible, and if you do not believe them, then you are not a Christian. Of course, we all know that um, you might have times of weakness. You might even have long periods of weakness where you're questioning things, where you're wondering about things, where, where your, your faith becomes very weak. That's why the, the man in the Gospel says, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. And all of us know what that feels like. We go time, through periods of time where, yes, we believe, but no, we don't believe. And we need God to help us with that. But, but if at the depths of your soul you have no trust in the promises of God, if you hear the promises of God, read the promises of God, come face to face with the promises of God, and you say, I just can't see it. If that's you then you are yet to come to the end of trusting yourself. Sometimes people say to me, um, when I'm talking to them, I just, I, I'm having a real hard time trusting right now. 
I just I can't I can't trust right now. And I said, no, you're wrong, actually. You are trusting someone. You will always trust someone. You will either trust the eternal Lord God Almighty, the the one who made the heavens and the earth, whose strength is endless, whose knowledge has no boundaries, who sent his only son to die for sinners like you and me, who, who knows every need that we have and has always met those needs. You will either trust him or you will trust yourself. I mean, think about that. What, think of the contrast between those two things. What are you? Um, what, 13 years old? Eternal God, 13-year-old, what, 21-year-old, 23-year-old, 30-year-old, 50 years old, 70 years old? Eternal God? You are weak. He is almighty. You are short-sighted. You can't see what's going to happen in the next five minutes. He knows the end from the beginning. You are often frustrated in your purposes. He is never frustrated in any of his plans and any of his purposes. You are often confused, stumbling around in the darkness. You will either trust this eternal Lord God Almighty or you will trust yourself. You'll always be trusting someone. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you one of God's magnificent promises in His Word. And it's one of the most far-reaching and comprehensive and precious promises that you will read anywhere. And actually, we've read it already this morning in our Assurance of Pardon. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And I want you to listen again to these words, these amazing words. I'm going to read verses 31 through 32. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and read a little more than that. Look at Romans 8, 31. And I'll read through verse 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now I'm going to focus on verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you understand and embrace the truth of that one verse, then it will shape every aspect of your life. It will change everything. Now, if you notice, this, this uh, promise in verse 32 really is in the form of a question. And it, it's the kind of question that, that is making a statement. It's not uh, looking for information. It's not, he doesn't want us to give an answer to this question. The answer is obvious, and the answer to the question is the point that he's making. So the promise is in the, is in the form of a question. And the question has two parts. It has a, a foundation and then a promise. There's a foundation that, that lays the groundwork that makes the promise make perfect sense. 
And what makes the promise of Romans 8.32 so radical and so far-reaching and so life-changing is the foundation of that promise. And he's using a logical argument here. Some of you think this way and you use logical arguments. It's something that, that we've lost as a culture. But Paul is, is arguing with you. He's reasoning with you. He's saying, now look, here, here's something that's true and if this is true, then surely this must be true. And surely you can rest in this. He's arguing from the greater thing to the lesser thing. Uh, there's probably some kind of technical name for that in logic. I don't know. But he's arguing from the, from the hard thing to the easy thing. He's arguing from the utterly astounding act to the not-so-surprising act. If God has done the greater thing, if God has done the hard thing, if God has already done the utterly astounding thing, then surely He will do the lesser thing, the easy thing, the not-so-surprising thing. That's the logic of this verse. And the power of that promise lies in the foundation in the first part of the verse. Look at it with me. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Now, pick that foundation apart. Slow down. We've read that verse a hundred times maybe. Slow down and, and let it soak for a minute. Think about what he's saying. Look at the action here. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is being handed over to die. That's the action. He is not being spared. He is being delivered over to a cruel death by the hands of wicked men. Now that's an amazing thing. Just think about that. In and of itself, that is an amazing thing. How can it be that the <clears throat> eternal, infinite, immortal Creator of the universe, who is life itself, how can it be that He would die? How can that possibly be? That doesn't make any sense to us. There's, you know, we get so calloused and so jaded and so, so used to hearing this that it makes no impression on us at all. But think about it. We've lost the wonder of it. There's a hymn that sometimes we sing uh, that Charles Wesley wrote. And it says, "'Tis mystery all the immortal, what? Dies. I mean, how in the world does the immortal die? It is a mystery, isn't it? But it, it boggles the mind. And that alone is worth pondering over and over again. But there's something even more amazing than that here in this, in this foundation of this promise. Look at the verse. Who is doing the action? The action is that Jesus Christ is being handed over to death. But who's doing it? It's God the Father, isn't it? God the Father is the one who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him over to death. God the Father is the one who did it. Now, think about that. Who killed Jesus Christ? Well, you could say the Roman soldiers killed Jesus Christ. You could say the Jews killed Jesus Christ. You could say, as we just sung a few minutes ago, that, and it's true to say this, you could say that it was my sins that held Him there. Right? It was my mocking voice. It was my sins. If it wasn't for me and my sins, there would be no, no point in the cross. So there's, there's a sense in which I killed Him. 
But none of those things really get at the, at the essence. Certainly not what he's saying here. Who killed Jesus Christ? Who handed him over to death? What's the verse say? He did. Who's he? The Father did. He did not spare his own son, but gave him over to death. Now, I want to I slow down on that for a second and let you, let you chew on that. Think about what that means. We often have this, um, this, this really unfortunate distinction in our minds between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father, we think, means, you know, Old Testament, harsh law, slaughtering, you know, innocent people in the land of Canaan, justice, mean, unwavering. Jesus Christ, nice, sweet, friendly, um, kind, soft, meek. If we ever have that kind of distinction in our mind, we will miss huge, huge realities that will strengthen us and help us. Think about it. Who's the one who's sending His Son? It's, it's God the Father. It's God the Father's idea to send His Son. That means God the Father is filled with loving kindness and mercy and compassion for sinners like you and me. And it's the kind of thing that the Bible stresses over and over again. Acts 2.23, listen to these words. This Jesus, Peter says, this Jesus was delivered up, handed over to death. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's definite purpose to kill His Son. In Acts 4.27 and 28, the apostles are praying to God the Father. They're asking for this boldness in the face of of persecution. They're asking for boldness to proclaim the Gospel. And they say to God the Father, for truly in this city where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's God who's, who's orchestrating this. In Isaiah 53... Those familiar words that we all know, that this, this hymn of the suffering servant written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. Isaiah says in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who put Jesus Christ to grief? Who crushed him? Jesus Christ was not caught up in some kind of unfortunate... Um, what's that movie? Uh a series of unfortunate events, or whatever it is. That's not what happened to Jesus Christ. The Father crushed Him. On purpose, deliberately, according to plan, the Father put Him to death. Why? Why in the world would a loving Father willingly crush His Son? And the answer is back there in Romans 8.32. Look at what it says. He, God the Father, 
did not spare His own Son, Jesus Christ, but gave Him up, delivered Him up to death, crushed Him, killed Him. Why? What's it say? For us all. That's what it says. God the Father gave Him up to death for us. Which means that Jesus Christ actually died in our place. Everything that we deserved, every lash of the whip that Jesus got, was coming to us. Every slash of the spear, every ounce of shame, every prick of thorn on the head, He took it and carried it on Himself for us. The same thing that Isaiah says again in Isaiah 53. Remember these words. Surely He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, not His. He was wounded for our transgressions, not His. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Now, what does He mean by that? Okay, this is another one of those places where we have to slow down a minute and, and don't think that you know what it means just because you've read it a hundred times. What does it really say? Who does He mean by us all? He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Well, it's the same people that He mentions in the next verse. Look at Romans 8.33. In this line of questions, Paul is just hitting us with one after another. These, these questions, these, these questions that really aren't questions at all. He's not looking for information. He's not wondering about the answer. They're statements of truth. They're promises. And the next verse says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? How can it possibly be that anyone would bring a charge in court against God's elect, the people that God has chosen to have mercy on? No one can do that. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Well, this is another sermon, but look what it says. It is God who justifies. So, the... the the us all of verse 32 is explained for us in verse 33. It's those who are God's elect. Those that God has set His love on. Look back in Romans 8 at verses 29 to 30. It says, Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So the, the us all of verse 32 is that group of people. It's one group of people here. Everyone whom God foreknew, that is, all those upon whom He set His love from eternity past, all of them were also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. All of them were also called with, a, with the Spirit of God, given new life, and all of those who are called, all of those who believe are justified. They're, they're, they're pronounced not guilty because of what Jesus Christ has done. And all of those who are justified will certainly be glorified. There's no exceptions. There's no tentativeness. 
They're the same group of people. They will stand in spotless robes of righteousness in heaven with great joy forever and ever. It's that group of people that Paul's talking about when he says in verse 32, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God the Father gave His Son up to death for all of His elect. Now, why is that important? Why would I go on and on about that? Isn't that some kind of you know, controversial, fuzzy, theological stuff that doesn't have any real practical use? Brothers and sisters, listen to this. That is what makes the foundation of this promise so amazingly sturdy. Think about it. It's that God actually gave up His Son to death. Actually gave up His Son to death for real, individual sinners. Not for hypothetical sinners. You understand what I'm saying? Not for for this vague group that you know whose whose membership kind of changes depending on what your mood is in. It's real, individual, particular, concrete, actual sinners that God gave up His Son for. Not for all who would happen just in their own goodness to choose to believe, but who could also, you know, decide not to believe anymore. That's not what it says. Jesus Christ, God the Father, gave His Son for real, particular, specific sinners like you and me. There's no vagueness. There's no tentativeness. There's no hypothetical maybes here. God delivered His Son up to death for individual sinners. Now, what does that mean? Think of it like this. We often sin, don't we? And the the more we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the more sensitive we become to our sin. And, And if we are not actively clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can get in in incredible despair and despondency and depression because we see our sin, but we're not looking at Jesus Christ. Well, what do you do when that happens to you? What do you do when you see your sin? And you think, here it is again. Here I go again. Here it is again. This is that sin that I repented of last month. This is that sin I repented of last week. This is the the sin I repented of last night. And here I am again. How can I possibly come back to Jesus Christ? How can I possibly come back to God when here I am, I've done the same thing again? What do we do when we're thinking like that? Well, instead of running to Jesus Christ, the only source of help and hope and comfort and grace, we think somehow, no, I've got to turn away from Him. I've got to come over here. I've got to shape myself up. I've got to suffer. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just be miserable for a week or two. 
and then I will have suffered enough and then I can come back because I will have paid for my own sins and now Jesus Christ will accept me again. That way of thinking totally denies what this passage says. Because Jesus Christ was given up to death for individual particular sinners and He was given up to death for the real, specific, particular concrete sins of real particular concrete sinners. Does that make sense? It's not just sin in general. I mean, that's, that's a problem. We are sinners. We're born sinners and we need to have that sin, sinnerness covered by the blood of Christ. But it's not just vague sin that we are dealing with here. It's actual sp- Specific, particular sins. The individual, particular sins that you and I commit, Jesus Christ suffered for those. You men who struggle with lust, this is one way that you can think about this that will help you kill that sin. That lustful look, that lustful thought, Jesus Christ suffered for that. Not just in a vague, general, you know, theoretical, hypothetical sense. Jesus Christ suffered for that look, men. He suffered for that thought. If God gave His own Son over to death for you, you, not potentially, not hypothetically, but really for you, then this promise is infinitely secure. That is the foundation of this promise. Jesus Christ, God the Father, gave His Son, Jesus Christ, over to death for real, particular, individual sinners to die for their real, particular, individual sins. And if you're a Christian, every sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's anything left for you to cover yourself, then you're dead. That's the foundation of the promise. What is the promise itself? Look what it says. Look again at Romans 8.32. The promise is this. God will also with Him graciously give us all things. Now, think of the logic. Read the whole verse together again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's the hard thing. That's the, that's the, that's the thing that should astonish us. That's the thing that should completely amaze us. If God has done the hard thing, He has given up His only Son for us all, then how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's the easy thing. If He has done the hard thing, if He has actually delivered His own Son to death for real sinners like you and me, then surely everything else is easy. 
compared to that. Now, how, why do we get this backwards? Because what we do is we read over that verse and we say, oh yeah, 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 Jesus Christ, yeah, delivered over to death for us all. Yeah, yeah. No big deal. I've heard that a billion times, right? That's just kind of, you know, that's the ABC stuff, you know. We need to get beyond that because, you know, we're more advanced than that. That's the easy thing. We claim to believe that, that Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for us. But what do we do with the other part of this promise? What do we do with the other part? The part that we freak out about is, is what in this verse is the easy thing. The easy thing is He'll give you everything you need. He'll give you everything that's good for you. Everything that is good for you, He will, of course, freely give to you. How in the world could it be otherwise? But that's the part that we struggle with, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know the cross stuff. I know the gospel stuff. I know that Jesus died for my sins, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, 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 I don't have a job. This is this huge crushing weight on me. I don't have a job. And, and I don't know how anything is possibly going to happen to get me a job. This is impossible. This is hard. This is worth fretting about. This is worth worrying about. This is worth staying up at night and, and, and chewing on and playing you know, this video in my mind about all the what-ifs. Because this is the hard thing. Yeah, I know Jesus died for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I don't have a job. You see how backwards that is? Or, I mean, fill in the blank, you know? Who am I going to marry? Or, what am I going to do with my life, you know? That's easy. That's the easy stuff. Jesus Christ has already been given over to death by His Father for you. That's the big thing. If God has turned His back on His one and only beloved Son. If He has crushed the one that He loves with infinite, perfect, eternal love, if He has crushed Him, and if He has done it for you, then surely He will give you everything else that is good for you. He will not hold back anything that is good for you. And everything that does come to you will come to you in the loving, sovereign hand of this Father who has already given His Son for you. Think of that. Everything that comes to you is exactly what is good for you. Everything that comes to you is exactly what is needed for you. The death of Jesus Christ for you guarantees it. Every blessing that comes to you is what God determines is good for you. Every Disappointment that comes to you is what God has determined is good for you. Every disease that comes to you, every setback, every heartbreak, every ache and pain that comes to you, every inconvenience that comes to you, even death itself when it comes to you, is exactly what is good for you. The death of Jesus Christ for you guarantees it. All of it comes to you for your good in the hand of this great King who is your Father. Now just think of how that changes everything. 
Can you, can you, can you, um, can you yawn at that? Can, can you live a life that's free from murmuring and complaining and worrying in light of this promise? Can you live a life that is filled with joy and love that forgets about you, that forgets about you trying to, to make it for yourself, you trying to, to, um, to get everything that you think you need from everyone else because you don't think that anyone else is going to give it to you and if you're going to get it, you're going to get it by your own sweat and, and fingernails. Can you live a life free of that that is able to love people and not just use them? Can you do that? You can if you're believing this promise. Now, just think of this. I said at the beginning here that we call ourselves believers, that the the Bible calls us believers. Those that are Christians are believers by definition. But do we really believe this all-encompassing promise? You say, yeah, 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 it's in the Bible, isn't it? So, yeah, I believe it. Really? What do you worry about? What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? When nothing else is going on, what's, what's playing in the, in the background? What's the background noise? What's, what is it that you are tied in knots about? What is it that keeps you from loving people because all you can see in them is, is potential use for yourself to get from them whatever you want from them? What is it that keeps you from loving them? If you and I are ever consumed with worry and anxiety and impatience, what about impatience? You think, no, 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 I, I, never, I don't have a problem with believing this promise. Well, what happens when you're stuck in traffic? Does your mind say, okay, this is... God the Father willingly and freely gave up His own Son for me and crushed Him on the cross for my sins. He's done that for me already. And and He will freely give me all things that are good for me. So this traffic jam must be good for me. I can rest. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to get tied up in knots. I don't have to lay on the horn. I don't have to shake my fist in front of me. I can say, okay, this is God's will for me. It's all right. Is that what you do? How many of you do that when you're stuck in traffic jams? John does. All right. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And we say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe this promise. We don't believe it when we're stuck in traffic jams, do we? We think, this is bad. This has to change. I don't need this today. Why is God giving me this? I know what I need today, and it's not this. How can I possibly believe that my life really is in the hands of the perfect Father who has already done the unthinkable for me? He has given His only Son for me, and then at the same time be filled with fear and worry because my life isn't working out according to my plan. Those things don't go together. But that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what I do. Here I am. 
this past um, Friday evening, thinking about the fact that I have to preach this Sunday on short notice. I found out on, on Thursday afternoon. And what am I doing? I'm sitting here at the kitchen table with my wife. She'll tell you. What am I doing? Guess. I'm worrying. I mean, I'm not just, you know, not, not just responsibility of saying, okay, now I've got to take care of this and I'll, I'll, you know. I'm not talking about that kind of worrying. I'm talking about blue funk worrying, you know. And I'm worrying about preaching this sermon about this promise. I mean, it just, you know, it's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. If you're a Christian, if you are a believer, then believe this promise. Stop doubting God's goodness. Stop doubting God's power. Stop doubting God's love. When everything around you seems to be falling apart, And you know what? When everything around you is falling apart, it's not going to be easy then. There's not some magic switch that you can flip and then this promise all of a sudden becomes easy to believe. If you can't believe it now, why will you believe it when your life is falling to pieces? When everything around you seems to be falling apart, stand on the firm foundation of the solid logic of heaven. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Rest in that, brothers and sisters. Rest in it and embrace it by faith. And as we share together in the Lord's table, as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, rest in that rock-solid promise and everything that it represents. Let's partake the Lord's table together. Brothers, would you come?